Beloved, as we turn to God's word, let me offer another word of prayer that he might bless our hearing and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for already what our eyes have seen and ears have heard. We thank you, Father, for supplying to us in such a rich way in Amos and Jonah, uh, in your word, most supremely in your son. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his love. We thank you for his sacrifice for our salvation. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for the promise of his coming. We thank you that he reigns in heaven now, interceding for us. We thank you for his spirit, which you have given to us. We pray now to you, Holy Spirit, just as we were singing a moment ago, come now. Set, Lord, not the atmosphere necessarily of this room, but of our hearts, of our minds. Make us spiritually focused and aware. Give us discernment as we hear your word and listen to it. And feed us, O Lord, that we might grow strong in faith, we pray. Lift up Jesus. Draw us to him. Give us more of your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's said that all good things must come to an end. And today we come to the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16. And in saying that all good things must come to an end, I am, of course, referring to the end of the gospel, not the end of my preaching. You may not be convinced that's all that good. But we come now to consider really the climax of Mark's account of the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, all the Gospels really share a very similar structure. They have sort of these long introductions, if you will, of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the miracles he performed, the, the teaching that he did. But then they really come to focus on the passion narratives. They come to focus on those events that include Jesus' betrayal and arrest, his crucifixion on the cross, which we considered last week, and then his resurrection and his appearances to his disciples and many others following the resurrection. What all the gospel writers are concerned about are these last two chapters, really. They're concerned about Jesus being crucified for our sins and Jesus rising from the grave three days later. Everything else is prologue. Everything else is introduction. Everything else is building up to this point. And so when we come to Mark chapter 16, we're going to see the, the same two things that generally happen at relating to resurrection in the gospel. We're going to see the announcement of Jesus' resurrection. And then we're going to see the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. That's what I want us to focus on here. The announcement of our Lord's resurrection and the appearance of the Lord following the resurrection. Look with me in Mark chapter 16. Begin in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying the signs. Verse 1 puts our eyes on the women again. They were mentioned, look back in Mark chapter 15, verses 40 and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So these three disciples here, these women, are disciples of Jesus. They have followed him really from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, which was kind of his, his home base of operations. And the text says there in verse 41 that they ministered to him. I think Mark has the same thing in mind that Luke has in mind. When in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, these women are mentioned and many other women, and Luke says they provided for them, for the disciples, for Jesus and disciples, out of their own means. In other words, in a world where women were almost entirely dependent upon their husbands and their families, these women had their own money, and they used it to support the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, to support the spread of the gospel, to gospel-minded women. And these women had been with Jesus, as I said, as early as Galilee. The first one that's mentioned is Mary Magdalene. That's her nickname, Magdalene. Verse 9 says that, um, and Luke 8, 2 says that she had been possessed by seven demons. And earlier in his ministry, Jesus had cast out these demons from Mary Magdalene. And it seems that Mary has responded in faith and gratitude because she has never left Jesus' side since that time. 
She has ministered to him and ministered with him. And it's interesting, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. She's mentioned first. She's the only one mentioned by name in John's Gospel. It gives you some suggestion that Mary is not only faithful to Jesus, but her faith in Jesus and her commitment to Jesus has kind of elevated her in the eyes of the community, in the Christian community, as an example and a model to follow. The second one that's mentioned is Mary, the mother of James. This is the same Mary again that's mentioned in chapter 15, verse 40. There she's described as the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, or as a nickname, also Joseph. It's not exactly clear who this Mary is. It could be the, the Mary who is the wife of Clopas that's mentioned in John 19. Or it could be Mary, the Lord's mother. And the James here and the Josephs here are the Lord's earthly brothers. Again, we, we can't be entirely sure, but we can't be sure that she was the, one of the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And third, we get Salome. I keep wanting to say Sally Mae. Salome. Too many uh, college bills. Salome. According to Matthew 27, she is likely the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Remember the sons of Zebedee. There's a James and John, two of the first disciples, two of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she's the mother of James and John. She's also then that woman in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, who comes to Jesus, you remember, and says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, let one of my sons sit on your right hand and one of my sons sit on your left hand. That's Salome. Or Salome. And the Lord told him that, you know, this is not mine to give, but they're going to drink the cup that I drink. They're going to drink the cup of suffering that I drink. And it's interesting to me that Salome doesn't turn away from Jesus. He gives them that hard word of correction about suffering. And here she is all the way to the end, enduring in faith, following the Lord, headed toward the tomb. Now notice their plan. Verse 1 says they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, anoint the body. They plan to prepare Jesus' body for burial. The spices that they have purchased, they're going to mix into a kind of perfume, and, and they're going to rub on the body. This is a, a customary Jewish kind of last rite, sort of a funeral practice. They're doing it now because the Sabbath has passed. You can't touch a dead body on the Sabbath or it makes you unclean. And now, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun is risen, they, they go to the tomb. First day of the week is what we would call Sunday. It's today, the, the Lord's day. The fact that the resurrection occurred on that day instantly for these Jewish Christians changed a centuries-long tradition of worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, to worshiping on Sunday. It's one of the most compelling sort of evidences of the historicity, of the historical fact and reality of the resurrection. People changed a, a religious tradition that was centuries old, commanded in their scriptures to worshiping on a new day. So here they are on the way to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. But there's a problem. Verse 3, who will roll away the stone for us? They had seen where Jesus was buried at the end of Mark 15. 
they knew that a large stone had been rolled in front of the tomb. And apparently there are no men traveling with them to the tomb, no, no burly brothers to move the, the heavy stone. And so they're wondering now, how, what are we going to do when we get there? It's an interesting sort of picture of a kind of faith that they're going to do what's right in anointing the Lord's body, even though they don't know how they're going to do it. So they're traveling to the, to the tomb. And everything about this passage tells us that they had no thought that Jesus might be alive. They were completely expecting a private tomb. But some amazing things happen when they arrive on the scene. Notice verse 4. They saw that the stone had been rolled back. Now that was a surprise to them, but it, it need not be a miraculous thing. A stone could have been rolled by grave robbers or, or any other uh, sort of group of men. That necessarily indicates something supernatural has happened. It's not until verse 5 when they actually go into the tomb and they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You say, what's alarming about a young man? Well, the Bible often uses the term young man to refer not to human beings, but to angels. Here's an angelic being sitting in the tomb of Jesus to the right side of where Jesus had been laid, dressed in a white robe, which symbolizes righteousness and glory, and he's sitting there in all of that angelic majesty, and when they see him, notice the text says they were alarmed. The striking word in the Greek is the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the midst of his distress. So they are emotionally shocked and rocked by this angel that they see. This is why, beloved, as an aside, I don't believe those cats should be on TV talking about they died, went to heaven, saw angels, and had a water fight with Jesus. No, son. Every time we see angels in the Bible, folk fall apart because of the majesty and the glory and the, and, and, and the power of those angelic beings. And here they are alarmed by what they see. Notice the angel. Here comes the announcement. It speaks in, verses, in verse 6 and 7 to say two things. He makes an announcement, and then he gives him an assignment. The announcement in verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, everything about this announcement is designed to both comfort them and to assure them of the reality of the resurrection. Notice now, the angel comforts them by saying, do not be alarmed. That's usually the first thing out of an angel's mouth in the Bible. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. And, and it's great that they say that, right? Because, again, we see them in their glory and, and we tremble. And, and like that Old Testament uh, person who, who sees the angel says, are you for us or against us? We, 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 you come to destroy us or you come to help us? In God's kindness for God's people, his angels come to help us. They are ministering spirits. So he comforts them by saying, do not be alarmed. It's not there to hurt them but to help them. Then the angel says things that uh, are meant to help them realize that the resurrection is not a fantasy, but an actual reality, a historical reality. Almost every phrase in the rest of what he says in verse 6 is, is rooted in the sort of real grit and grime of earthiness. 
Notice what he says here, that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. He, he, he refers to Jesus' hometown here. He, he's sort of bringing back to mind this person who had actually been born of a virgin and had grown up in a family and had grown up in the trade of his father who had a hometown like you and I. Very real human earthly beginnings. Then the angel says he was, he was crucified. That really happened. He was nailed to the cross just a couple of days earlier. He actually died. Golgotha was not a bad dream. It's reality. The Son of God murdered in the place of sinful humanity. And then the angel says, though, he has risen. He's risen. He is not here. The angel calls him, say, see the place where, where he was laid. Look over there in the, in the sort of burial sort of platform. He's not here. He is risen. The women were not overlooking the body. The women um, were not sort of delusional and having a sort of fantastic reality. The body had not been stolen by grave robbers. God had raised his son from the dead, just as the scriptures had predicted. He is risen. I love the way one scholar puts it. He says, it is not the empty tomb that proves the resurrection, but the resurrection that makes the empty tomb meaningful. There are a whole lot of empty graves in the world. There are a whole lot of empty caves that were set aside to be graves for people in the first century here. What made this interesting, what made this profoundly meaningful was not just that the, the tomb was empty. It was that God had raised his son. Jesus is alive. And that's good news because he's alive right now. The right hand of the Father praying for me and you. That's the announcement. Verse 7, the angel gives the assignment. Notice what he says there. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the angel here now promises an appearance of the Lord. There's not just an announcement because anybody can say anything, but there's also now the appearance of the Lord, which proves the truth of the announcement. And so he gives them this assignment to go to Galilee, to gather the disciples, to gather the followers of Jesus Christ, and notice there, and Peter, and to tell them to meet the Lord Jesus in Galilee after the resurrection. Now they must have faith. They must expect the Lord to keep his word. Notice there, as he told you. It shouldn't have been new to them. Jesus had taught them this, and the angel is reminding them of what they have been taught. As we said a moment ago, Galilee was the base of operations. It's kind of where it all started for Jesus in terms of his earthly ministry, his public ministry. So they're going back to the place where it started, back to the place of their learning, back to the place of their discipleship and training, back to the place where they first began to walk by faith. How many of you know that sometimes to go forward, you got to go back? Sometimes to move forward productively in life, especially after trial. 
trauma, especially after something as devastating as death, especially after the crucifixion of the Lord, you got to go back to those first things you learned, those basic things you learned, the place of familiarity, the place of comfort, the place of earlier success. Sometimes to go forward, you got to go back. Jesus still has work for them to do. They're to meet the Lord in Galilee. Now, see how the Lord, I love this, singles out Peter specifically. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You remember that Peter had failed Jesus spectacularly. Uh, He had boasted when Jesus told them about his coming crucifixion, he had boasted that even if everybody else, else abandoned Jesus, he would not abandon Jesus. And remember, Jesus told him, said, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. That's precisely what happened. Time after time after time, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And the rooster crowed. And the last time we saw Peter, He was weeping bitterly and leaving the high priest's home where Jesus was under arrest. Here now, Jesus says, go get Peter. Peter is probably still weeping. Peter probably feels disqualified as a disciple. He probably thinks God is through with him. But Jesus says, go get Peter. Make sure my disciple Peter is there. And beloved, that's how God remembers us. We can't fail our way out of God's plans for us. We can't. It's good news. We can't fail our way out of his grace. We cannot fail our way out of God's love. We cannot fail our way out of God's remembrance. As much as we fail, God pursues. As much as we struggle, God delivers. As much as we are tempted to give up, God preserves us in his grace. He keeps us in his hand where no man can pluck us out. Peter is in God's hands. Peter is in God's grace. Peter is in God's love. Peter is on Jesus' mind. Peter is being called back to the Lord for the only kind of, for the, for the kind of healing and restoration that only Jesus can. All of us are so many Peters, sometimes so aware of our failure that we're tempted to think that we're not even to belong with the disciples. But look at Jesus. Look at the angel speaking to Jesus. First thing on the agenda, go get the disciples and Peter and meet me in Galilee. Verse 8 says that at first the women disobeyed the angel. They went out and fled for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You see the the repetition to fear and afraid in these couple of verses. It it, it means they were scared. They were really scared. It's the main thing to, to know about them in this text. They're struck with fear means we should think about fear for a moment. Fear is a strong drug, beloved. Sometimes fear 
will keep us from obeying the plain commands of God. Fear will even make us deny what we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears. These women have made it to the tomb. They have seen that the tomb is empty. They have seen the angel. They have heard with their ears the instruction of the angel sending them to Galilee. But in fear, they disobey. It's not a problem of not knowing what God wants them to do. It's not a problem of not understanding God's commands. It's a problem of fear making them shrink back from following God in faith. Now, we can't be too hard on the women, can we? Some of us right now know what God has told us in his word and know what we have seen God do for us and how we have seen God move in our lives. But some of us right now are steadily backpedaling away from that in fear. You know the assignment that God has placed on your life. You know how he has called you to serve. You, you know the burden that you feel, but, but you're afraid that somebody won't believe you, or you're afraid that somebody won't support you, or you're afraid that it's going to be hard, or you're afraid that there's going to be suffering. You're afraid that you won't be recognized in some way. That fear has become a snare and a trap for sin. God has called you to go forth in faith and obedience, trusting him just as he's called these women to do the same, afraid though they are, to go forward in faith and trust in his son. We're never going to be able to be faithful disciples if we respond more to fear than we do faith. But if we respond in faith to what God has told us in his word and what we have known God to do in our lives, we will find ourselves conquering fear over and over again. One more application I want to make from this first part of Mark 16. In Jewish and Roman society, the sort of heroes of this chapter in verses 1 to 8, the women, would not at all have been regarded as important in the first century world. They, they wouldn't, for example, have been able to testify in courts because of the misogyny, because of the, 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 the sort of putting down of women and the not valuing of women, the, the lack of equality. Now think about what God does here. God gives the announcement of the most important event in history, the resurrection, to the least important people in society. He gives the most important announcement to the least important persons according to society. God sends the most important message to the least important place, Galilee. He doesn't send them to the religious capital. He doesn't send them to other mighty cities and mighty capitals in the world. He sends them back to this little hillside, countryside area or region where Jesus had sort of taught them and shaped them. He sends the most important news and the most important messengers to the least important place. There are no insignificant people and insignificant places to God. There are no God-forsaken people or God-forsaken places. There are church-forsaken people and church-forsaken places, but not God-forsaken. 
insignificant people in the world's eyes and insignificant places in the world's eyes are, are where God does his work first and best. God intends big truth to go to little people and forgotten places. That's why we want big theology taught to so-called little people. From children as little people to the people that society overlooks. In this case, women in the text. But you imagine who you will as, as people who are overlooked in this society. God intends the, the big truth of his message to go to those little people. God has a high estimation of what low people can receive. God is never guilty of the soft bigotry of low expectations. Never. Never. God's work of salvation almost always begins on the margins of society. If we don't understand that when we read our Bibles, then I'm going to tell you what will happen to us. It's what's happened to most of sort of American Christianity. We will begin to be in love with the powerful and the famous. And we will begin to want the, the favor and the attention and the cozy relationship with the powerful and the famous no matter their sort of moral standing or spiritual standing, we'll begin to identify with the wrong persons in life. When God in the Scripture comes to the lowly, when he comes to the outcasts, he comes to those on the margins, those who have been rejected. If we see that in the Scripture, as we read the Scriptures and our hearts follow God's heart, we'll have a bigger love for the broken places and the broken people, the forgotten places and the forgotten people we will have perhaps more awe of the fact that we are saved. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. You can turn it with me if you like, or you can listen along and read it later. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. The Apostle Paul says this. For consider your calling. Think about your salvation, is what he's saying. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, talking about the Christians, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You understand that what this text is saying is that you and I were nothing in the world, and God chose us. And God chose us nothing people, us insignificant people, us little people, to flip on its head the wisdom, the power, the strength, the influence, the popularity of the world. That to forget that is to forget something very fundamental about how God works in the world and very fundamental about God's love for us, even though we're nothing. God's work always begins on the margins. Why am I pressing this point? It's because human beings, including ourselves, again, we too often look on the outward appearance. And when we think too little of insignificant and insignificant places, we too often develop the wrong attitudes toward them. We start, at the very least, 
lowering our expectations. We lower our expectations of each other spiritually and morally and socially and intellectually. And we lower our expectations of God, what he can do, does do, and is doing. Don't do that. When the angel give these women, this insignificant women, this announcement of the resurrection of Christ, the most important announcement in the world, he's calling them up. He's calling them up. He's giving them big truth to take to the whole globe. He's giving them this announcement that, that changes eternity. He's not saying, well, you're lowly, so I don't think much of you. He gives the whole gospel and the whole plan of salvation into the hands of these women. And this is why we want, as church families, to be calling each other up in Christ to be calling each other out of fear and calling each other into the, the, the deep things of God, the beautiful things of God, and to be calling each other to take it to the world. Again, here in Anacostia, to the four corners of the globe. That's the announcement. Let's think now about the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. That begins in verses 9 to 20. Now, you may have a, a Bible that has a header in the beginning of this section. It says something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. Just raise your hands if, if you've got a Bible that says that. Good. you got a good Bible. This is a, an important issue. So I, I want to slow down just a little bit to think it through with you um, and then tell you pastorally why I, I want to do this. It, it, it's interesting. I read a number of commentaries and talked to a number of pastors this week. So what do you do with Mark 16? And most of them say, I don't mess with 9 to 20. I just stop at 8. And I thought, that'd be nice. But I know y'all got Bibles that's got 9 to 20 in it. And it's got this little phrase up there that says, this is not in some of the early manuscripts. And I know that that might cause people a little bit of uncertainty. So let's dig in it so we're not, we're not uncertain. We, we know that the Bible, amen. <laughs> we know that, I feel my help coming. We, we know. <laughs> His name is Akeem. We, we know that the Bible has been kept and transmitted, sort of passed down to us through a process of copying. There are a whole, it's a whole field of scholarship that studies this and all that good stuff. We won't get that technical. And before the Protestant Reformation, the 1500s and 1600s, that process of copying was, was pretty much hand, hand copying before the printing press. Now, like all ancient writings, right, some of the manuscripts have survived. Some of them have survived and been damaged, and some of them have been lost. But as it is, we now have over 5,000 copies, ancient manuscript copies, from as early as about 135 A.D. and the latest about 1200 A.D., of the Bible in full and of fragments of the Bible. Some of the fragments are as small as a post stamp. And we got some that are sort of whole letters of the Bible, and some, as I said before, that are, that are whole Bibles. Now, all of these manuscripts is what gives us confidence that the Bible we have here in our hands, translated into English, is the Bible that the early church had, is the Bible that the apostles um, taught and preached and wrote and put together. Well, how does that work? Well, a lot of people think that the Bible's been changed by man. Raise your hand if you ever heard that. 
That is the Bible. That's Bible. That's man's word. The Bible's been been changed by man and all that good stuff, right? And and people say that as a way of trying to undermine your confidence in the Bible and to undermine your faith. And some may be well-intentioned, but they're wrong. And the reason we know they're wrong is because of those 5,000 fragments and whole copies of the Bible in different languages, at different times, in different places in the world. And what scholars do is they take all of that fragmentary evidence, they take all of those copies, and they, and they compare them. So that if there are any changes, you can see where the change happens. And you can see even when the change happens, right? Depending on the date of the, of the fragment or the copy. And here's, here's what's remarkably true. Is that when you do that work of comparing fragments and copies, it's remarkably uniform. It, where there are errors, there are usually easily discernible errors that have to do with copying or handwriting. And they're usually like, you know, in one text it says a thousand horses, in another text it says a hundred horses. Like a zero got left off or a zero got added. Nothing having to do with the basics of the faith and the truth of Christianity. All of those manuscripts give us confidence in the Bible. So then what about verses 9 to 20? Well, Verses 9 to 20 is, is that one sort of challenging part in the Bible. It's like, okay, this is a little bit different. It's a little bit different in a couple of ways. Number one, these verses are in some old manuscripts. So these verses do exist in some old manuscripts. They don't exist in the oldest manuscripts, right? And so that's what causes the problem. That's why you have that little note there, right? And so what we want to do is sort of think about this. In the oldest manuscripts we have, some of the most reliable manuscripts we have, verses 9 to 20 aren't there. Church fathers like Origen and Clement of Alexandria don't have, they don't, they don't believe that these verses were in the text. Church historian in the 4th century, Eusebius, says that these verses weren't in the original manuscripts, weren't in the text. And so it's almost certain that these, these verses are not a part of the original gospel that Mark wrote. But what happened to the original ending? Well, there's three possibilities. Number one, his gospel ends in verse 8. That's possible. Number two, probably more likely, the original ending was lost over time. Now think about how, a, how an ancient codex or book or an ancient scroll would have been put together. These last verses would have been at the end of the book. We didn't have like leather binding and things of that sort. It would have been at the end of the scroll. So it would have been the part of the gospel that had the most wear and tear on it. And so you would see fading, you see corruption, you see tearing. It could have been lost as a process of that wear and tear. Or a third possibility is it, it ends in verse 8 because Mark was killed as a martyr by Nero before he could finish his gospel. He lived in the time of Nero's persecution. Well, we don't know, right? All of those are possibilities. How did it come to be in our Bible? And why need this note? Well, it came to be in our Bibles because over the course of history, our scholarship has gotten better and our manuscripts have gotten better. So when it was included in the, in the sort of English Bibles and, and, and included in Mark's gospel, it was during a time where the best manuscripts we had actually had, that, had these verses in them. As we got more manuscripts and, and began to do more scholarship, we discovered better manuscripts. And those better manuscripts, they weren't there. 
So why continue to include it and why preach it this morning? Well, because I'm a little bit crazy and because I think all the Bible should be taught, right? The things that we have in the Bible, particularly things that may trouble us in faith. So why include it? Two reasons, really. The verses are in some very early manuscripts. And that leaves the, the slight possibility that they are authentic. And number two, the verses are consistent with the endings of the other Gospels. In fact, when you read verses 9 to 20, it actually feels like a summary of key events in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Seems like he just sort of tied off the gospel, some copyist, some writer later, sort of tied off the gospel to give the appearances, um, the appearance scenes that we find in the other gospels. Now, this fact shows that the teaching about Jesus' resurrection and his appearances was already well established in the church before the writing of this gospel. In fact, if you're troubled by this, all I would do is direct you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is written at least 10 years before Mark. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have the longest sort of explanation of the resurrection and its meaning in the Bible. So this was well established before Mark was completed. So it doesn't contradict anything in the Bible and in the other Gospels. In fact, it confirms things in the, in the Bible and in the Gospels, and it, it, it brings Mark's conclusion to a point that looks like the other Gospels. Again, I'm going through this because I want you to trust your Bibles. As your pastor, I want you to have complete confidence in the Word of God. I don't, I don't want us to be tripped up by people who claim the Bible has changed. It's not. It's not corrupted. The Bible that we have is the Bible that the first century church had. And it's the Bible that God has preserved for us. How does this give us confidence in the Bible? Well, number one, again, we know exactly what parts of the Bible might be authentic and which parts might not be. Knowing that, again, from the manuscript evidence, gives us confidence. Now, if that's not quite clear for you, let me, let me give you an illustration. Let me give you a comparison. Let's compare this to the Quran. The prophet Muhammad never wrote any of the, the sayings, any of the ayats, the signs, the verses of the Quran. In the time of the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran was memorized. The first, the first leader following Muhammad, a man by the name of Abu Bakr, was in a situation where Muslims were in lots of wars. And, and many of the men who had memorized the Quran and were companions of the Prophet Muhammad were being killed in these wars. And so he said, you know what, we better do, we better put the Quran down in writing so that we can preserve it. And so Abu Bakr commissioned this sort of collection of the sayings, which he organized and became, became the Quran. He didn't, he didn't distribute it, though. That's not until a man named Uthman, about three leaders later, comes onto the scene. And by that point, there were different versions of the Quran in different parts of the, the Muslim world. And Muslims were fighting about this. This is how you get Sunni and Shiite Muslims, for example. And so Uthman says, we better get an official version. So he writes to all of these places where the fighting was going on. He says, send me your, your copies of the Quran. He put together a committee that then sort of decided on the official translation of the Quran. Now, when he did that, he took that official translation, sent it back to the cities, 
And guess what he did with all the, the sort of fragments and the evidence? He burned it. So now, if you're trying to sort of establish whether or not a verse in the Quran is actually authentic, you can't do it. Because you don't have the fragmentary evidence. You don't have the, the evidence from archaeology. You don't have anything to compare it to. And this is why Sunni and Shiites are still fighting about who should, who should be the proper successor to Muhammad because the Shiites say there were over 100 verses that, that should have been in the Quran that proved the band named Ali should have been Muhammad's successor and, and they shall never meet in the middle. In fact, immediately after the official Quran was put together by Uthman, the man who was in charge of the committee of putting the Quran together, almost immediately after he published it, he, he wrote in, in it's, it's recorded in what's called the Hadith and tradition, he, he wrote in the tradition, as soon as we send out the Quran, I remember that there was one verse that the prophet used to say that we did not include. So you can never solve the problem of the Quran and whether it's authentic because you don't have anything to compare it to. You can always test the question of authenticity with the Bible because we have thousands of manuscripts all over the world, different languages, different times, and that gives us our confidence that the Bible we have is the Bible that's always been. Again, the other reason I want you to have confidence is because this section agrees with the other gospels. So let's end this sermon by thinking about what's in this section and the point that we should take away from this section. We got four appearances in verses 9 to 20. First of all, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. That's what we see in verses 9 to 11. And after not saying anything in verse 8 because of her fear, in, in verse 10 and 11, um, she goes and tells the other disciples who are weeping and mourning, but they don't believe her. The second appearance is to the two disciples in verses 12 to 13. This is probably the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus from Luke chapter 24, when Jesus appeared to them, taught them what the Bible uh, said about him from the beginning to the end. They too come to the apostles and tell the apostles that they have seen the Lord, but the apostles, again, verse 13, don't believe him. Then we get to the third appearance to the 11 apostles, verses 14 to 18. When Jesus comes to the, uh, the, the 11 disciples, notice what he does. He first rebukes them for their hardness of heart and unbelief. If there's anything in the Bible that Jesus consistently rebukes, it is unbelief. And he comes to his disciples and he rebukes them because of it. But then after he rebukes them, notice he gives them the Great Commission, Mark's version of the Great Commission. He tells them basically to go into the world, to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom, and to make disciples. And then he says in verses 15 to 16, uh, again, where, where you got the Great Commission, the same ideas in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Then he says in verses 17 and 18 that there will be miraculous signs that follow them. Handle snakes and not, not die from being bitten, they'll drink poison and not die, and things of that sort. Now, a very good reason to not do those things in Christian worship, because this was not in the earliest manuscripts. So you are never going to come to ARC and see us doing some snake handling. Do that at home if you're going to do it, but I don't advise it. I don't advise it. You ain't going to be in here drinking no poison, none of that. So he appears to the 11 apostles. And then number four, notice, he appears to God the Father in heaven. In verse 19, Jesus was taken up into heaven. 
It's what Christian theologians call the ascension. Once Jesus reaches heaven, notice what he does. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits because his work is finished. He sits on the right hand because that's the place of honor in heaven. His work is done. His position is taken. Then in verse 20, the disciples finally understand. They believe and they obey. They go out preaching the gospel everywhere and performing miracles. And you can probably see the main concern of these verses. It's the main concern of all the Bible writers, really. really. Like all the gospels, the gospel of Mark is written so that we might believe in Jesus. It's written to stir our faith in him that we might be saved from God's judgment against our sin. That we might become new creatures who obey the Lord and follow him. That's what the entire book is designed to produce. Believers in Jesus who obey him and take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Make this real plain as we close. If we do not believe in Jesus, then we are not followers of Jesus. And if we do not believe and obey Jesus, then we are not followers of Jesus. If we don't take the gospel to our neighbors, as these first disciples did, and to the end of the earth, then we are not followers of Jesus in any sense that the Bible would recognize. If we don't believe and follow, then our faith is fake. Real Christians believe and follow Jesus. By our faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And by our following Jesus in obedience, we are sanctified. We are growing in holiness and set aside for service to God. Now, at the end of a life that's lived in faith in Jesus and and, and, and is therefore justified and live in obedience to Jesus and therefore is growing in sanctification, the end of that life is glorification. We will see Jesus and we will get the reward that he has promised. We will get the reward for which we have been living. We will get the reward for which we have made so many sacrifices because of obedience. We will be glorified together with him. We will share in his glory. We will be transformed into his likeness. All of his promises will be fulfilled, yes and amen. In his presence will be fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. The life of faith and obedience is a rewarded life. But fear will cause you to doubt that. And unbelief will cause us to doubt that. Which is why Mark calls us to faith why the whole Bible calls us to faith. And this morning, there may be some of you who need to begin your journey of faith. You, you need to take the first step in following Jesus so that your sins would be forgiven and so that you would have a, a personal knowledge and relationship with God and so that you will begin to grow toward that reward that he has for you. And that first step is real simple. It is to acknowledge to God that you are a sinner. Your life's not perfect. You've done wrong things. Don't get defensive. We all have. From the pe preacher to the back pew back there, we all have. 
it's a fact of human life. So acknowledge it. Mourn over it. See the damage that your sin has done in your life and done to others. And see this reality that because of your sin, God is angry with you and prepared to judge you. Acknowledge that. Then repent of it. Turn away from it. Say to God, I don't want to live a life of sin anymore. I don't want to keep going my own way. I want to follow you. I want to follow your son. I want to, I want to follow you all the way to glory, all the way to heaven. And put your faith in Jesus. Trust Jesus to do what he said he would do. When he said he would die for your sins so that you wouldn't be judged for them anymore. And when he said he would, he would provide the Father a perfect righteousness so that his righteousness would cover your own, would provide for your own. Trust him to be your Savior. Trust him to be your Lord. Confess him as Lord and follow him wherever he takes you, wherever he sends you. You may have a new life today. And I don't just mean a new life kind of like New Year's resolutions where you decide to be different. I mean an actual spiritually new life. You may be born again today if you put your faith in Jesus and follow him as your Lord. You want to know more about that? See us after the service. We'll be happy to tell you more. Talk to the Christian friend who brought you. We'll be happy to answer your questions, even hard questions like, why is this in the Bible? Because there are answers to your questions. And because your questions shouldn't keep you from Jesus. Trust him today. And ARC, let us by grace through faith go on to follow Jesus wherever he takes us, whatever he wishes to do with our lives. Let us be those who announce his resurrection, who speak of his appearing and his coming again, and who ready ourselves for that glory that's been prepared for us. Let's follow Jesus. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you so much for how you stretch us in your word, how you teach us things that we would not know otherwise, how you show us more of yourself and give us hope and help and encouragement from your word. We'd truly be lost without your word, Father. We'd be lost without Jesus. We would be destined for a judgment that we richly deserve. And there wouldn't be a thing we could do about it. And that's why we praise you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's why we praise you for sending your son into the world to bear our sin, to take it to the cross so we wouldn't have to bear it anymore. And we praise you for raising your son from the grave so that we would have victory over sin, victory over death, so that we would be free from the fear of judgment and we would have, Lord, a new life with you forever. So fill every heart this morning with the hope of glory. Form Christ in us, we pray. Teach us by your spirit and your grace and your word to follow our Savior closely, joyfully, faithfully until the end. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name.